0: And the law is not the perfect description of the righteousness of God. That verse says that Jesus became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ.
1: Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. And today, Nikki, we are going to continue the passage that we started last week um, in Galatians 3. We're going to talk about 19 to 22. Now, we did talk a little bit last week about verse 19, but we're going to do um, a more complete finish of that verse because we didn't discuss everything in it. This is such an important section of the book, I'm realizing that as we're studying for this, podcast, I'm learning things at a level that I've never really seen them before. Yeah, I've understood the concepts. I've understood the arguments about the law being fulfilled and you can't go back to it. But some of the reasons and the implications, I'm seeing them with a new understanding. Mm-hmm. It's been a really exciting walk through this book. So we're going to continue in Galatians 3 today, but I want to remind everyone that we love hearing from you. You can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. You can go to proclamationmagazine.com, and there you can sign up for our weekly Proclamation Magazine emails. Those come with links to our YouTube channel, to this podcast, to our podcast transcripts, and to our online articles and magazines. And also, I want to remind you that you can give us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts if you love this podcast. It helps this podcast to go to a greater audience when there are likes and... Ratings. So now, Nikki, I have a question for you. Okay. When you were an Adventist, what role did you think the law played in your righteousness? I think that I thought of it kind
0: of as um, a map or a North Star, actually. It was, in my thinking, it was the transcript of God's character, and I was to strive to uphold it, to uh, model it to the world to obey it completely and fully, and when I didn't, to repent profusely. (laughs) And this would help me to grow into the likeness of Christ. You know, Jesus said, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And to me, we did that by looking at at the law. Yeah, that makes sense. Now I understand (laughs) we look to Christ. But as an Adventist, I believed Christ looked to the law. Yes, He was there vindicating the law. The law was his map. You could look past Jesus and just go straight to the law. Mm -hmm. You know, not that I thought he was insignificant, but the law was that significant.
1: That's actually really interesting to me to hear you explain it that way. One of the things that going through Galatians this time has done for me is helped me see even in a new way that exactly what you said was true. The law was my standard of righteousness righteousness was not in my mind as an Adventist. It was not defined by Jesus. It was defined by the law. And Jesus came to show us that it was defined by the law because He <laughs> he kept it perfectly. And as I've said before, that was just really kind of annoying and irritating that He could have been so perfect and that He gave us, you know, the instruction that we had to be perfect as our Father in Heaven was perfect, and we all knew that God kept the law right? Mm-hmm. I had to be that perfect and it was defined by law keeping. And what a travesty now that I see what <laughs> the law really was here for. But I had the same view that the law defined how it looked to be righteous. And I would have said, oh no, I'm not saved by keeping the law. I would have said, I'm saved by... um. Well, what would I have said? I'm not even sure.
0: You know, I recently read a quote and I probably shouldn't even bring it up because I don't remember <laughs> I don't know how to reference it. Um, but I I could if somebody wanted to know, I could mm-hmm. go back to my notes and find it. But I read a quote that described it was an Adventist writer and they described the forgiveness of sins as being the forgiveness of our past sins. Yes. For me, thinking about that, then Christ saved us. We're saved by Him paying for our past sins so that now we can go forward, not committing sins, right. keeping the law. So, it was it was like He took care of
1: the past because obviously I can't, and now I'm responsible for the future. Yes, I definitely felt that. And if I didn't, I would fall from, fall from salvation like I ever had it. Yeah, you don't ever really know, do you? No.
0: But on either end, if you didn't have Christ, well, then... There's nothing you could do about your past, so you can't be saved. But if you don't
1: take care of the future, Uh then you can't be saved. Which brings me back to that existential anxiety I always felt that was getting worse and worse and more intense as I aged just anxious all the time. I felt like I was always looking at the past and regretting what I had done wrong and looking to the future and scrambling to try to get my ducks in a row so my future would be better than my past. And today was completely missing. Today was just anxious. Yeah, there was no um, confidence. There was no knowing we're saved. In fact, Ellen said, it was a sin to say we were saved. So, the righteousness that I understood uh, that had to be mine in order to be saved was defined by the law, but I was like double-speak-y taught that I couldn't get to heaven by keeping the law. I had to have Jesus, and I had to keep the law by the power of Jesus, which which meant He somehow prodded my conscience, made me feel guilty, and then was somehow going to give me the power to have the willpower to resist sin. Mm-hmm. while I looked at the law to figure out how to behave. All backwards.
0: Yeah. I don't know how they justify the doublespeak. Maybe they think that because the law can't deal with the past, that's why you can't be saved by the law. And maybe because
1: I, I actually sometimes suspect a more nefarious purpose. Mm-hmm. Adventism really tries to look Christian. Yeah, And they really try to use Christian words to describe their doctrines. And that's one reason why Walter Martin was so confounded in the 50s when he met with the Adventist leaders. They have the most Christian-sounding words of all the, quotes Christian cults or the American religions it was easy for him to see what was wrong with Jehovah's Witnesses and Christian science and Mormonism. It was not easy for him to see what was wrong with Adventism because the Adventists knew how to talk a Christian talk when they didn't mean the same things Christians meant. So we were just raised in a puddle of confusion (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that resulted in ongoing anxiety for which there was no resolution until I met the Lord. And it was a surprise. So, Nikki, today we're going to discuss um, Galatians 3, 19 to 22, but for context, it's so important. What we're going to talk about today comes off of what we talked about last week, and I just want everybody to remember what we read last week. So, would you read from 15 instead of 19? Read from 15 to 22, and then we'll talk about 19 onward. Okay.
0: Okay. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say unto seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. What I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to
1: those who believe. Thank you. This is an amazing passage, which I confess over the years has been just a little confusing to me. I've had to actually think it through almost word for word. And I realize, Nikki, how much my thoughts, my understanding of Bible vocabulary were originally formed by my Adventist worldview. It's unconscious. It's not something I deliberately did, but it's so profound that when I read something like this passage— I have to literally go word by word, phrase by phrase, and figure out what he actually means by the words. Mm -hmm. I can't allegorize it. I can't spiritualize it. I have to go, these words have to mean something. And it's been a learning curve for me. But when you sort of dig down under the surface, oh my goodness. (laughs) Pretty amazing. Yeah. So, um, last week we talked a little bit in verse 19 about what it means that the law was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. Do you want to talk just a little bit about what Paul means that the law was added because of transgressions? We did discuss this last week, but just to sort of bring us up to speed and move into the rest of the verse. Why was the law given?
0: Well, we know that sin existed before the law. Yeah. And we know the law came in 430 years after Abraham, after God called him out of Ur and made a covenant with him. 430 years later, he pulled the Israelites out of Egypt and then he gave them the Mosaic covenant, yeah. which is often referred to as the law. Mm-hmm. And usually whenever Adventists hear the word law, that's the only thing they think about is the Mosaic covenant. But here he's he's specifically talking about the Mosaic covenant. Which includes the Ten. Which includes the Ten Commandments. And it's because, remember, those Judaizers have come in and they are trying to tell these Gentile Christians, listen, you come in through us. Yeah. You have to be circumcised. You have to come and live in submission to the Mosaic Covenant and be a Christ follower. Yeah. And Paul has just made clear, no, they come in through Abraham. Which is such an amazing thing. Yes. And and this promise is through Abraham for all people, really. Even true Israel has to come to faith through Christ. It's yeah. it's their relationship to Christ ultimately that determines their their standing with God. So then the normal question is why the law? Yeah. Why the law? And we talked last week about the fact that while sin existed before the law, the law was needed to reveal transgressions. Yes. Which revealed that that sin is rebellion against God.
1: Right. Because until the law existed, as we learned in Romans 5, sin was there. Death reigned, as Paul says in Mm -hmm. Romans 5. Death reigned from Adam until Moses, even without a law. But where there is no law, sin is not imputed. People were sinning without always even being conscious of how sinful they were. They weren't even completely conscious that the things they were doing were sins. This is why Jesus said to the Jews when he was giving his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7, establishing his new law as the new lawgiver. This is why he said, you've heard it said, you know, you shall not commit adultery, but I say unto you, anyone who lusts in his heart has committed adultery already. And then he talked about marriage and divorce. And he reiterated that divorce was only lawful in this new law he was giving for purposes of adultery. And he said to the Jews, Moses allowed for divorce because of the hardness of your heart. And I realize now when I'm going through Galatians that that's actually really true. Before the law was given, before everything was spelled out, people didn't even understand that what they were doing was sinful. They were so hard-hearted that to protect. I think, to protect wives from abuse of their spouses, God allowed for divorce so people could be separated and avoid very dangerous situations. That's how I see it now. But he said, Moses allowed it because of the hardness of your hearts, but I say, and then he gives the new law for the church for fidelity in marriage and and working through things. But that's a different podcast.
0: Don't you think that's connected to us being a new creation in Christ? We have a new nature in Christ. I've always been fascinated by the fact that before he went to the cross, he was speaking to his disciples, these people who'd given up everything to follow him. Clearly, they loved Yahweh. He's speaking to them and he says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to you? He was speaking to believers in Yahweh and he called them evil. And we know in Ephesians 2, Paul says, while you were dead in your sins, Christ raised you to life. So we know the church age the church era and the, the new creation is something completely different. It requires a different law,
1: <laughs> a deeper, newer law. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's what he meant when he was referring to the hardness of your hearts, was that they were depraved. They were not born again. But people back then didn't even understand that their hearts were hard and depraved. And the law came to reveal to them that they couldn't be good. Mm-hmm. That was its purpose. They couldn't be good. And
0: in their badness, it was actually rebellion against God.
1: Yeah. It wasn't just minor things that were accidents. It was rebellion against God. And that's what they were living out. And that's what the purpose of the law was. It was never given to make people righteous. It was given to reveal they were unrighteous and to make them look to the Lord Jesus, whose personal righteousness is what is imputed to us who believe.
0: Now, can you talk a little bit about the angels mediating the law? That that shows up in verse 19, and you read the Old Testament, and you have God coming to the mountain. And so, I used to wonder, what is this about now in the New Testament? We're hearing about angels being a part of
1: this. I looked up a couple of marginal references, and it was really kind of fascinating. And I, I realized that once again, You know, I've heard it said that there was Jewish tradition that angels were involved in the giving of the law, and I believe that. I believe there was a Jewish tradition for that, and I'm realizing now it came from something. It wasn't (laughs) just out of nothing, but it came from Deuteronomy 33.2. In Deuteronomy 33, this is nearing the end of the book, and the book of Deuteronomy is encapsulating Moses reiterating the Mosaic Covenant to the wilderness generation before they go into the land, because they hadn't been alive at Sinai. So, he's reiterating the law, reiterating the terms of the covenant. And here in 33, it starts this way. This is beginning with verse 1. Now, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. And just by the way, all of those are names regarding Mount Sinai. There's different names used in the Old Testament and in, I suppose in the culture for that mountain. And that's why these three names are named. And he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. And then the beginning of verse three, indeed, he loves the people. All your holy ones are in your hand and they followed you in your steps. Everyone receives of your words. The literal interpretation of the words, your holy ones in that verse two, that he came from 10,000 holy ones is literally myriads of holiness, (laughs) myriads being a huge, huge, huge number of holiness. So, I had not realized that. Me neither. That's amazing. (laughs) So, when you think of Mount Sinai with lightning and thunder and fire and smoke and earthquakes and trumpets and terror and the Israelites saying, don't do this, don't speak to us, Moses, you speak to God. It's too much for us. There were angels involved there too. And Stephen, in his sermon in Acts 7, talks to the Jews about the law being delivered by angels. So, yes, God's holy ones were involved in that, and who
0: knew? So then it goes on and says that that the law had been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made, and that mediator is Moses. Yes. It's interesting that Moses says, one like me is going to come.
1: And we were to listen to him. Mm-hmm. It's also significant to me that this verse 19, you know, that it was done by a mediator, by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. And that was the point of the last lesson we did last week's discussion from 15 to 19. That seed to whom Paul is referring is the Lord Jesus, and that the promise of the seed given to Abraham was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. That's his point. But then in verse 20, it goes on with the mediator idea a little bit more. He says, Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one, which is a little bit of a confusing text. Mm-hmm. He's beginning here by talking about the Mosaic Covenant, saying, the law was ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. And so we can understand that. Mm-hmm. How? It's really just descriptive of what we read about.
0: God came with his angels. They were present, and he gave Moses the law, and Moses was the mediator between God and And Israel, the two parties of this conditional covenant.
1: And it was through Moses' mediation that God and Israel agreed on their terms. Mm -hmm. God says, this is what I will do. And Israel goes, and this is what we'll do. We'll keep all your words. We'll do everything you said. And Moses delivers the messages between them because the people don't want to hear from God directly. To think about this in our current legal situation. If you have two parties who have a lawsuit for some reason, often the court will appoint a mediator to try to work out terms of an agreement before anything goes to trial. So a court-appointed mediator is representing actually both sides. They don't have a vested interest in the way this comes out. They represent the two opposing parties. They represent their will to the other side and try to work out a way these people can compromise and agree Mm -hmm. on something that's good for both of them. That's a mediator. That's what Moses was in the Mosaic covenant. So he represents two parties. And that's what Paul means when he says, now mediator is not for one party only, but then he goes, whereas God is only one. (laughs) (laughs) That, That used to baffle me. Right. It, me it too. seemed so off topic. Yes. But now we have to realize that Paul is already discussing two different covenants. Mm-hmm. He's explaining the Mosaic covenant, but he keeps talking about Abraham and how God has granted certain things to Abraham by means of a promise, not by law. So this brings us back to the Abrahamic covenant. So here Paul is. Introducing this contrast between God's covenant with Abraham and the covenant he made with Israel through Moses. And this is kind of a significant thing to understand about this passage because Paul is going to develop this. And when we come to Galatians 4, he's going to show exactly how this plays out and exactly how the Mosaic covenant means something completely different now on this side of the cross and how what was promised to Abraham way back before Moses is still continuing. He is doing this contrast between these two covenants. So, when we say God is only one, that's not a reference to the Mosaic covenant, because the Mosaic covenant had a mediator, Moses. Mm -hmm. So, what was going on with the Abrahamic covenant? Why would he say God is only one? What were the terms, what was the condition under which God made a covenant with Abraham?
0: Well, this takes us back to Genesis 15, when God put Abraham in a deep sleep and then he cut the covenant
1: (laughs) with himself. Yes. And Abraham was not permitted to make any promises or any agreements. God simply moved through those sacrificial animals, which he'd had Abraham prepare. But you know, what's interesting to me is that when God did this covenant, made this covenant, or we call it sometimes cutting the covenant, when he actually confirmed that covenant by moving through those sacrificed animals in the form of a smoking pot and a flaming furnace, Abraham had already believed God. Mm -hmm. It's all in the same chapter. Genesis 15, 6, God said to him he was going to multiply his descendants. It was not going to be through his servant Eliezer. It was going to be through a son of his own body. And Abraham had no idea how that could work because his wife was barren. But it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. That preceded God putting him into that deep sleep and then making this covenant on his own terms, which was, I'm going to give your descendants this land I'm going to bless the world through your multiple descendants. And he even told them what he could expect in terms of the future, that his descendants would be enslaved for 400 years, that, that they would then be brought out of slavery and brought back to the land. And that was an unconditional covenant. And we call it unconditional. Why? Because there were no conditions given to Abraham. God said, I will. And Abraham wasn't even allowed to say, I will obey you, he did not participate, completely unconditional.
0: You know, it used to trip me up that there were other parts of Scripture where God would tell Abraham he needed to do things, but it's a lot easier to understand now with a better picture of the church, we're commanded to do things as well, but it's on the basis of the indicatives, the things that are true about us. We are his people. We are born again. And now this is how He wants us to live and move forward in that reality. Abraham was called by God. He wasn't seeking Him. God called Abraham and He told him, I'm going to do these things. And it's on the basis of those indicatives that now Abraham will walk. As you have received Him, so walk in Him.
1: That was true for Abraham. It's true for the church. That is a really good point, because I know there are people out there who try to say that the Abrahamic covenant was conditional, because later in Genesis, God said other things to him, like, you need to circumcise your progeny from all of your wives. If anybody does not get circumcised, he is removed from the community and does not receive the blessings. But that doesn't undo the fact that God made the promise to Abraham and his seed That promise stands, and it was an unconditional promise. People, as you said, can move out of those covenant blessings if they choose not to remain. But when they have accepted the terms of the covenant, for example, with Abraham, when they have been circumcised, that put them into that community. God's blessing for that community was promised to those who were in that community. With us in the church, when we believe, God's promises to us stand. But when we sin, it doesn't take us out of the covenant. It just means that we have to repent of the sin and learn to walk by faith, because even believers will have works burned up if they're not based on the Lord Jesus, 1 Corinthians 3. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean we're not saved, but it means that we don't receive the blessings that would have been ours if we had walked according to the indicatives.
0: Would it also be right to think of the, the mediator as
1: the God-man? Yes, I, I think that is fair. And I think that in this text, in verse 20, Moses is kind of doing a pivot. He was talking about the Mosaic covenant, which was administered by a mediator, and he's contrasting it with the Abrahamic covenant, which preceded it, which was entirely done by God without the participation of a man. But the interesting thing about that Abrahamic covenant is that when God confirmed that covenant, there were two objects that moved among those animals, the furnace and the pot, both smoking. We can look forward to the new covenant and we can see that we could actually say that was made by the Father and the Son, because we see that the Father and the Son are the primary participants in the new covenant. The Lord Jesus keeps all of the legal requirements that the old covenant demanded. He died the death for sin. He satisfied the wrath of God. He propitiated for sin. He broke the curse of death. And this was done with the Father, without the participation of any other human. But— Jesus was God and man. And that's the thing, that this text can be seen as a contrast between the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant, but there's also in view this foreshadowing of the New Covenant, which Paul is going to go on and explain. That was also done by God himself with, we can see now, the persons of the Father and the Son. It says in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, for there is one God And there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And what we see here is that Jesus is one. He, inside himself, he represents God, the offended party, and man, the party who is in rebellion against God. And as a man, he takes the imputed sin of all humanity and pays the price of human sin. And as God, he is omnipotent and enabled to take the sin of all of us. He didn't die a representative death. He died a substitutionary death for us all, for all who believe. So, it is one man who mediates between us and God, and it's God himself who is also man. It's a miracle I don't know how to explain but it's still there. It's still the fulfillment of what Abraham experienced as he lay in his sleep and heard what God said. I just love how much is packed
0: in that one sentence. (laughs) That one verse, verse 20, contains so much theology. It's hard to talk about, but it's all there. I love how Paul just knows the arguments before they even come. <laughs> and I remember when I was first leaving Adventism, I would be reading him and I'd have these, but what about, and then Paul would say, well, what about this? You might ask. <laughs> and, oh. <laughs> I mean, he knows the arguments and he says in verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. And I know I, I had the law pitted Against. It was like God had this plan A in the garden. Well, that didn't work. Okay. So plan B with Israel, well, that didn't work. So now we're on plan C and they don't all work together. There's not an overall Yeah. You know, sovereign design to it. He goes on and says, If the law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. So that completely takes away any notion that the law was ever a plan of its own. Oh, this will bring righteousness. That was never the plan. He had a different purpose from the beginning of time for the Mosaic covenant. And he says in verse 22, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And I want to add Jew or Gentile. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I can't add to scripture, but I think Paul's going to flesh that out oh, as he moves his to point, the rest really. of this book. Because that's the point of Galatians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's interesting. We see here that it was never God's intention to give us this Decalogue, that we would be able to try to keep so that we could be made righteous and
1: saved. That was never the plan. It had a different purpose. You know, it was a kind of a new thought for me to go through all of this for the purpose of doing this podcast and realizing how I had to unpack these sentences, which just seemed a little bit vague to me. And understanding that part of the promises of God, which God promised to Abraham, involved mankind understanding that they needed a Savior. He was sending a seed through Abraham's descendants. And then we would find out that Abraham's seed will ultimately include all who believe. But if we don't understand that we're depraved and that we need a Savior, we're going to just, like I did as an Adventist, just walk right kind of next to that cross, look at it and go, oh, that's interesting, and walk on by. If I don't know that I am hopelessly, by nature, a child of wrath, there's no compelling reason for me to want to save here. The law came not to oppose the law, not to give a new way to be saved, but to enhance the purposes of the promise. It was a way to get humans who were blind in their sin to begin to wake up and see that they were sinful.
0: I remember hearing Gary say once in a sermon, that one of the best things you can pray for your unbelieving family is that they would know their need. And that's really what this does for us. It shows us our need. I think of judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Natural man can justify just about anything and moralize just about anything. But the law came to give us concrete, black and white.
1: Condemnation. Yes. (laughs) And it's interesting that he ends verse 21 by saying, if the law was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. And I want to say all of those people who are still Adventists or who are still locked in a legalistic system of religion, think about what Paul is saying here. The law is not given to show you what righteousness looks like. How do we know what righteousness looks like? Christ. Christ is the exact
0: imprint of the nature of God.
1: And it's Him. It's His personal righteousness that God imputes to us when we believe. It's not the righteousness of the law. It's not perfect law-keeping that He gives us. It's not even perfect law-keeping that Jesus gave us. Jesus gave us Himself, and that was how He was able to keep the law. He was God. He was over the law. So, it's just really important to see that the law wasn't given to us to show us what righteousness looks like. It was given to show us how sinful we are. And then Jesus came along and showed us what righteousness looks like. And it was not related to law. It was related to who he was, his perfect ability to love and be just and merciful to do exactly what the Father said at every moment of his life, waking or sleeping, lockstep with the Father. He came and showed us God's will for humanity. And the law is not what did that. And the law is not the perfect description
0: of the righteousness of God. That verse says that Jesus became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Right. Second Corinthians 5.21. The righteousness of God is not contained
1: in the Ten Commandments. No, it's not. And in fact, just looking at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, we see that what Jesus set forth when he said, you've heard it said, but I say, he set forth a righteousness that was much bigger than what was in the Ten Commandments. He didn't just come and show us how to interpret Moses. He came and showed us what kind of righteousness God expects and it's not contained in the law. It's beyond the law, and it's something no one can do unless they're born again and indwelt by God Himself, which is what He does for us. So, in verse 22, Paul just completes that idea, but the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. How has Scripture shut up everyone (laughs) under sin? You know, in the
0: S. Lewis Johnson sermon that we listened to that covered this portion of Scripture, he said that the word used there is the same word used when um, the Bible talks about the disciples casting a net into the water and it contained, it captured, it shut up all those fish. So I think of this now. No one is without excuse. It contained all the world, all of people in sin. Yes. It revealed Jew and Gentile both are guilty before God. And it makes me think of Paul saying, as to the law, I was blameless. Right. So clearly, while God's word is infallible and inerrant, so we have to believe that Paul is not lying to us when he says that, clearly that wasn't his means of righteousness. If he was blameless before the law, he still stood condemned in need of a savior. That's so true. He still needed to meet Christ. Right. And you think of the rich man who came and said, I keep all of the commandments. And Jesus told him that wasn't enough. Righteousness doesn't come that way. And being contained and exposed as a sinner shows us our need. And that's what
1: scripture does for all people. And for those who say, as I used to say as an Adventist, well, God knows my heart. I'm just not quite able to do this as well as I should, but he knows my heart. He knows I'm sincere. He knows I don't want to break the law. This reminds me of an illustration that I read in J. Vernon McGee's commentary on this passage. And his example was, there's a tall building and three men go up there. They're working on it. They're doing some construction. The supervisor comes up to the roof where these men are, way over the street below, and says, be careful that you don't get too near the edge. And one man who looks down and sees how far it is says to himself, I don't think I'll die if I step off. I mean, it would be interesting to see what would happen. I I don't want to die. I don't want to disobey the supervisor, but I can't see that this is a, a mortal problem. And he jumps over the edge of the building. And <laughs> McGee said, like about the 10th story, somebody inside the building sees him going by and says, how are you doing? And he's going, I'm fine so far. <laughs> but then a few minutes later, he's on the street dead. Now, another man up on the roof just got too near. He was distracted. He was looking around and he accidentally fell off. He didn't intend to fall off. It was a total accident. It was not deliberate, but he ended up dead. And the third man was suddenly accosted by some people who had followed him up there, some people who had something against him. And they took advantage of his situation on this tall building and pushed him over the edge. And he fell to the street below where he died. And McGee's point was this. All three of those men were equally dead. They all reached that street below by different means. One did it intentionally, thinking it couldn't be that harmful. One was a complete accident, not intending to break the law of gravity. And the other was something done to him by thugs and pushed him off. But they were all dead. And that building is like the law. It doesn't matter how sincere we are, that we don't want to break the law, that we want to keep the Sabbath, that we want our diets to show that we believe our bodies are God's temple. It doesn't matter how hard we try or how sincere we are. If we are living by the law, we are under a curse of the law. It's a curse just as powerful, just as eternal as is gravity. And we are helpless. We are dead. And Jesus comes along and fulfills the law in himself, takes the curse, and it is forever a non-issue for those who are alive in him. Now we live by faith in the one who saved us, and we walk in the same way we're saved—by faith. And the sins of the flesh, as Paul explains in Romans 7, don't take us out of salvation. They don't push us over the edge of the building once we are safe in Him. Because we're in Him, His righteousness is attributed to us by the Father because we've trusted and believed. And we're safe from being condemned by that law of gravity, that law of death that the law brings us. And if you haven't yet trusted Jesus, who took The curse of the law for you. Bring him your sin and trust him, and you'll be safe.
0: If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for the weekly emails containing new online articles and other ministry news every week. You can also find a donate tab there if you'd like to come alongside the ministry with your financial support. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast and please share it with your friends. And join us next week as we look at Galatians 3, verses 23 through 29, where we learn further what the purpose of the law was.
1: And we'll see you then.